Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 32 through 51. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Two weeks ago, we ran through a short study on eschatology. Eschatology is a study of the events surrounding the end times, the second coming of Jesus Christ, what is also referred to in the Bible as the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's not just a day. It's a whole bunch of events that are surrounding the second appearance of Jesus Christ. So we're going to continue in that today. Um, and uh, we're going to kind of build on what we did two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we looked at a couple of events that are major events. First of all, we looked at the rapture of the church. Jesus said, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. He told his disciples, and then I'm going to come back and get you to bring you to be where I am. That's going to happen 
when the rapture of the church happens, when, when Jesus comes back to receive us to himself. It says in Thessalonians, those who have already passed on, the church members, the believers of all time, those people will be given their glorified bodies, and those who are still alive, if we're still alive on the earth, those believers that are alive when Jesus returns in the rapture, we will be caught up in the air to meet him there, transformed with our glorified bodies to be with the Lord forever. The rapture of the church is the very next thing on God's agenda. It's imminent. It can happen at any moment. It could happen today. Well, people say, well, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Some things need to happen. Let me tell you something. Yeah, they can happen rapidly. They can happen rapidly. The next thing on God's agenda is the rapture of the church. That's what we're going to talk about today, getting prepared for that. The second event we looked at was the saving of God's people, the Jews. God has not forgotten the Jews. He made a covenant. He made promises to to them. And when God makes a promise, he keeps his promises. Even though we are faithless, he remains faithful. And as it says in Hosea chapter 3, Israel will come trembling to the Lord in the last days. It's going to be a very difficult time for the people of Israel. The abomination that causes desolation that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 that Daniel talks about, uh, it's clear that there'll be a time when the Antichrist, who will initially have a peace treaty with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation period, that seven-year period, halfway through that period, he breaks that that uh, treaty with Israel and turns his guns on them. And they're chased into the wilderness. And Israel and the Jews will experience great persecution like never before. And a third of them will be saved, a remnant. As it says in Zechariah chapter 13. We talked about God's plan for Israel. And then the third event we talked about was the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ after the tribulation period, after Armageddon will come back to earth and reign from Jerusalem, Mount Zion, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Every time you sing the Hallelujah Chorus, you should think about the Millennial Kingdom, that thousand-year period that kicks off when Christ comes back as Satan is bound in the abyss for a thousand years, and peace and righteousness fills the earth again. Many, many Old Testament prophets and prophecies were made about this. It'll be fulfilled during the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. We talked about that. And of course, the big question that people keep asking me is, Pastor, uh, but do you have an idea? Is it, is it, is it going to happen soon? Is it, do you think we're in the end times? When will it happen? What about the pandemic? Well, Jesus said, I'm going to come in an hour you don't expect. You won't know when. He said, I'm coming. I'm coming back. It's like uh, playing with my little grandkids these days. You know, I got little ones now that are toddlers and all that, and they they love to play uh, hide and seek. And if you're the one who's seeking, uh, doing the seeking, you hear, right? Come out of your mouth, here I come, ready or not. Well, that's a statement that has implications When you talk about Jesus coming back, he's going to come back, whether we're ready or not. So as we close out this third part series, we've called it the can-do people series. Why the can-do people? What what led me to come up with that title? Well, I got, frankly, uh, 
I got tired of seeing too many Christians afraid, fearful, uh, nervous. I'm thinking this is just a rehearsal. This is playtime compared to what's happening. And God doesn't want us nervous, afraid, anxious. He not only intends for us to survive, but to really thrive. That's why after all of those sections we read a couple of weeks ago, it says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with what you know about the outline of what's going to happen. Encourage each other. We should be thriving, not just trying to survive. Next week, we're going to talk more about that, by the way, when I talk about vision, our vision. Every year in October, first Sunday, I report to you as the senior pastor what our vision is, where we're, how we're moving the ball down the field, and where your investment in the vision is going. I'm going to talk about that, and you're going to see we have been thriving this year, despite all the challenges we faced. Why? Because I believe we've got God's heart. We are, we are believing that this is a tremendous time for opportunity for the gospel. People are afraid and they're asking questions. Great opportunity for the church and for the kingdom. And our verse, our key verse, this whole series, has been Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. Christians are can-do people. So let's look at how this applies now to what we've been talking about in eschatology, how Christians should live knowing that Christ could come at any moment. How should we now live? The first command, and it's really a command that's in the, that's in, uh, the Scripture, is to be alert. Be alert. In other words, be, be watching, be waiting. Now, I'm going to go through a bunch of verses here, so I want you to stay with me. Matthew 24, verse 42. Therefore, keep watch, be watching, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. What do you watch? You watch world events. You watch what's happening in Israel. You watch. You're alert. Hebrews 10, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. What should we be doing during this time? We should be loving. I often say this, that that's the number one characteristic of the church and of a Christian. The people should know that you're a lover. That you love. You love people. You love people that are difficult. You should let the love of Christ. The Bible says the love of Christ has been poured out. Greek word, very strong Greek word. Almost like it's, it's overflowing, like water overflowing a bucket. The, God, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. We should spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together. This is not a time to be skipping church, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more. When? As you see the day approaching. James chapter 5, verse 8. You too, be patient. Be patient. Don't be impatient. Be patient. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And then 1 Peter chapter 4 says, the end of all things is near, therefore be what? Be alert. There it is. Be alert. God wants you to be alert about his coming. Does that mean you're going to know when it is? No, you won't. You won't know when it is. You'll see signs. And frankly, you're not going to be able to figure out the signs to, let, to know when it's happening. But all of that is to say the signs are all telling you to be ready, be watchful. 
God is moving world history towards a climax. Matthew chapter 24, therefore keep watch because you don't know what day our Lord will come, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house be broken into. No sane thief would ever announce the time he's going to rob your house, right? No one's going to do that. They're not going to send you a text and say, hey, Bob, I'm going to be emptying out your garage and taking your F-150 truck sometime between the hours of 8 and 10 on Tuesday night. Could you, could you not look for me there? In fact, could you not be at the house that night? Nobody does that. That's what Jesus is saying. When Jesus comes back, people won't know. And by the way, there are some very good reasons for that. If people knew exactly when Jesus would return, no question, some would just eat, drink, and be merry. They may be godless to the very end. Or some people would be so stressed out if they knew exactly when Jesus would come back. Think about it. You'd be so stressed out, living in panic. You think the pandemic is causing people to be fearful? What if we knew the exact time? Some people, no question, even though they knew the time, would waste their lives to the very end. I see that all the time. People come up to me and they say, Pastor, I'm young. I hear what God wants from my life, but I want to kind of sow my oats. And then, and then later on, later on. You know, I kind of know, I kind of figure it's going to happen later on. Then I'll get right with God. Okay. There's a word for that. Foolish. Foolishness. You don't know what your life's going to be like tomorrow. There are lots of good reasons why God does not reveal the exact time of his coming, but he does tell us to be alert, to be watching, to be expecting his return at any moment. Maybe you heard the story of the preacher who was preaching on Revelation the book of Revelation, and he was the kind of preacher who didn't need any notes, you know? You know the type, like some young preachers have a last name, starts with E. Anyway, sometimes they don't preach with notes. And he's not preaching with notes, and sure enough, he forgets the next point, and he's in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, and he says, behold, I'm coming soon. And he can't remember the next piece. He says, behold, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. It's not coming to him. So he figures that maybe if I slam my hand on the pulpit, it'll shake me loose. I'll, my memory will come back. So he slams his fist on the pulpit. He says, behold, I'm coming soon. And just as he does that, he knocks the pulpit, and it, it falls right into the front row in some lady's lap. And she's all upset, and he's kind of apologizing. And, and then finally, she says to him, Pastor, don't apologize you warned me four times that you were coming, and <laughs> look, don't get stressed out. You're not going to know. We're not going to know. It says he's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come like lightning. But he does say, be alert. Be watching. Watch the signs. And that leads us to the second 
way we respond to all of this. We need to just not only be watching. It's one thing to be watching and alert. It's nothing to be ready. You got to be ready when Jesus returns. Matthew 24, verse 44 says, so you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you don't expect him. So, Pastor, how do I get ready? Number one, number one, you got to get saved. No question about it. That's where you got to start. You have to make sure you are part of the redeemed, the justified. Look, at that cross, Jesus dies for all your sins, past, present, future sins. One act. He died. He takes the penalty for you. You ask the average person in America, how are you going to get to heaven? Here's what they're going to tell you. Well, you know, I've been trying to live a pretty good life. What they're basically saying is, I'm trying to do enough good things to work off the bad things so I get my ticket in. All of that will not get you into heaven. Most people are not going to be in heaven because they're believing a lie. And frankly, where, where have they gotten that lie from churches? Pastors who tell them, oh, you're a Christian. You're a good person. Just be a good person. What is he telling them? Bank on your own righteousness and goodness to get you in. Listen, folks, if you and I could get in that way, Jesus doesn't need to come and suffer and die. He needs to come and suffer and die because there's no way it's hopeless for any of us to get to heaven. We can't get to heaven. No matter how good we are, we can't work off those sins. And by the way, purgatory, this second chance after you die to get him worked off, fiction, absolute fiction. It's not in the Bible, not at all. So the truth of the matter is, Jesus has to come down and die and pay for our sins, past, present, and future. Why? Because we can't do enough to get there. And here's the good news. He does the work, and here's what he requires of you. Stop trusting in whatever you're trusting in, your religion, the fact that you were baptized, confirmed, all your goodness. Stop trusting in that. Stop it. Put your trust in his death alone. Receive that by faith as a gift. Lord, I believe your death on that cross makes me right with you and saves me. Not anything I've done. And then number two, surrender your life to him. As he said to the young rich ruler, come, follow me. That means making him Lord, allowing him to be Lord in your life. You don't make him Lord, he's already Lord. It's allowing him to be the Lord of your life. That means when you do that, when you believe and surrender, believe and surrender, believe and surrender, when you do those two things, God's answer to that is new birth. That's when you're born again. Look, you know I grew up Roman Catholic. I never heard the term born again, never. Went to church every Sunday, 24 years. Knights of Columbus, fourth degree. Lectured at the, I lectured on Sunday at the Mass Never heard the term born again until I picked up a Bible at 24 years old and I read it, John chapter 3. Jesus replied, verily I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Jesus saying you can't even see heaven. Forget about getting there. You can't even see it unless you're born again. It's right there. And I remember being at a, at a kitchen table with my parents who were, who were still very much Roman Catholic and they and they 
were saying to me, you, you have to just follow the Catholic faith. And I said, listen, I, I'm, I, it's not that I have anything against the Catholic faith. In fact, I'm very glad I, I was brought up in a tradition that taught me the basics of Christianity, but they did not teach me about this. And I don't know what born again is. All I know is if Jesus says you have to be there, you have to be born again to get to heaven, I got to find out what it is and I have to be born again. I know that. My, that trumps anything anybody tells me from my church. If Jesus says I have to be born again, I have to be born again to see heaven. So how do I get born again? You turn to Romans 10, 9 and 10. It maps it out as clear as bell, as clear as, as, as anything else in the Bible. Here it is. If you declare with your mouth, you have to, listen, at the end of the service, I'm going to give you an opportunity. God has to prepare you for this. But I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer. What you have to do is tell God yourself, you have to declare with your mouth, Jesus is what? What does it say? Say it. Lord. What does that mean? He's the master. He's the king. Listen. I, I don't care what baggage comes with this word. I am a slave to Jesus Christ. When I came to Jesus, I gave up all my rights. The master owns me now. I've been bought with a price, the Bible says. When you come to Jesus, if you really want to know him, you can't give him 98 or 99. Not good enough. He wants all of you. He doesn't want to improve you. He wants to make you into a whole new person. That's born again. A whole new person in Christ. Not some weird religious fanatic. He wants to make you into the person you've always wanted to be, but you can't because you don't have the power. So what you have to do is you have to surrender your life and confess him as Lord to say, Jesus, you got permission. Please, I, 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 want, I want you to take over. Take over everything in my life. I'm yours from this moment on. You want me to bang rocks the rest of my life, I'll do that. I don't care. I'm yours. That's confessing him as Lord with your mouth. And then what? Believing in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You have to believe what we just talked about. He died and rose what? To cover all your sins, past, present, and future. Believe and surrender. Believe and surrender. I never heard that until I was 24 years old. And I wrestled with it, frankly, for, for at least a month. Because look, hey, you're telling me all my religion, all my hard work of trying to be good enough is, that means nothing? I haven't accomplished anything? Yeah. They're dead words. They're nothing. They don't mean anything. It's what he's done. And it's surrendering my will and my life to him. Happened, that happened to me in March of 1980. I was uh, working in New York City. I came home about 7 o'clock. I actually commuted through the Trade Center, which is not even there anymore, of course. And I picked up my train. I went to my apartment in Elizabeth, New Jersey. I got home. I went to bed. I said to God, God, I read these words. No, I'm not this standard. I know I'm not born again. I know I haven't surrendered everything to you. I give up. You called the shots in my life. That's what I told him. Went to sleep. I didn't have any charismatic experience or anything. Just went to sleep. But I, I'd done 
what I'm supposed to do. I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. And you have to do the same if you're going to be saved and born again. It may happen in a different way to you. You may experience something a little different, but it all comes back to belief and surrender. That's when you receive the Holy Spirit. And no one has to tell you that you're born again now. You will know it. I'm occupied by somebody different than myself. He's changing me. He's changing the way I think, the way I talk. If there's no change, something's wrong. How could the living God come inside of you and not change? Impossible. Ah, now, where the change is more, yeah, it's gradual for some of us. It doesn't happen overnight where all of a sudden everything changes, but there's got to be change. Has to be. Because Christ now lives in you through the person of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says this, you're controlled by the Spirit now. If, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not, don't belong to him at all. Listen to me. Some people say sometimes, oh, you're one of those born-again Christians. Let me tell you something. There is no born-again Christian and not born-again Christian. There's only born-again Christians. There's only people who are indwelled by God's Spirit. Everybody else is, by definition, according to that verse, not even a Christian. Those who do not have the Spirit of Christ indwelling them do not belong to Him at all. They can call themselves Christians. They can go to Christian church. But they're not Christians. There's only born-again Christians. That's it. And Christ, it says, lives within you so that even though you, your body will die one day because of sin, we're all going to die. I did a funeral just yesterday for people in their 20s. No one knows how many days they have on this earth. Our, our bodies are going to die one day. But the Spirit, because now we're born again, because God's Spirit lives in us, it's going to give us life. Because why? Because you've been made right with God now. You're okay with God. There's nothing between you and him now. You've been saved. You've been justified. You've been forgiven. And the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead on Easter, he'll give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Ah, how do I get ready, Pastor. Jesus is coming. Well, first of all, you got to make sure you're saved. You got to make sure you're born again. But there's a second way, according to Matthew 24, that we get ready. And that's uh, by being faithful. Here's the verse. Who then is a faith who then is the faithful and wise serp- servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household, to give them their food at the proper time. It it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. What that is saying is, first of all, it's calling us all servants, right? That's That's a good term we need to learn today. I'm supposed to be a servant. And when Jesus comes back, he's, I'm supposed to be doing what? Serving. Does that mean I gotta be passing out bulletins in the church or doing something in discovery land well it won't hurt <laughs> to be serving in God's church at that time when he comes but that's not what it means it's, it's really a much broader idea the point is you ought to be doing what God's called you to do and being who God's called you to be when he comes that's all talking about managing my life at every moment it's the issue of stewardship let me tell you something 
The, the thing that God wants us to monitor every day is our management. How are we managing? It's asking myself diagnostic questions all the time. For example, very practical. Am I, am I right now, as the senior pastor of Appleton Alliance Church, is this what I should be doing right now in my life? You have to ask yourself the same way. Same question. I, I, had, a, I had a plumber this week at my house, and I was amazed at how this plumber was just outstanding. Went through my whole house, checklist, did, just did amazing things. And you could tell, this guy was hardwired to be a plumber, and he loves it, and he's good at it. That's what God's called him to do. Uh, maybe a question is, am I doing what God's called me to do right now? Is that the way he's hardwired me? Or am I just doing something just to make money and not really what God's hardwired me or called me to do? You, he's a God of order. You're going to be good at it. You're going to see people blessed when you're doing it. But it could be a plumber. I was with a CEO this week of a big company. Man, that guy was made to be a CEO. He is in his element. He is, he is a great CEO leader. He thinks like that. He needs to lead a company, this guy. So I got to be ready and faithful and stewarding and managing my gifts and my abilities. At every, listen, by the way, at every life stage, at every life stage, you know, I, when I turned 50, I started to get bombarded by those glossy magazines from AARP who were kind of shouting to me, it's time to get ready to retire. The devil would like nothing better than for God's people to check out a life at the end. Just check out and have one goal in mind. It's all about me relaxing now and enjoying life. I worked hard. No more work. No more discomfort. No more responsibilities. It's all about making it easy for me to live. How does that sound? Does that sound good? Here's a problem. It's not in the Bible. And yet, I'm telling you, especially my generation, the boomers, thousands of Christians are drinking the Kool-Aid. You look at their life. Oh, yeah, they come to church and they tithe or they do this. But their whole life, 95% of what they're driven by is about my pleasure and my ease. No more discomfort, no more sacrifice, no more pursuing the kingdom and taking risk. They're drinking the Kool-Aid. I, <clears throat> I had a doc here in the Fox Cities who uh, was working well into his 70s. I think he's finally retired, but I said to him at one point, I said, Doc, when, when are you going to hang it up? He goes, you know what, Pastor, I'll be honest with you, I can't. I can still do what I do, but the main reason why I'm still working is we support a lot of missionaries. And God has made it perfectly clear to me. They still need support. He gets it. Now, I'm not saying you can't retire, but it's a mindset. What are you retiring to? <clears throat> to make the goal of your life, <clears throat> your comfort, ease, or kingdom. Doesn't matter whether you're working, whether you have small kids at home. When Jesus comes back, am I serving where I'm supposed to be serving? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I managing what he's given me? Money, gifts, abilities. You got to be ready. 
He wants to find you serving well and being faithful. Luke, Luke chapter 12, be dressed ready for what? Service. Keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for the master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, immediately opens the door for him and it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he'll dress himself to serve and we'll have them recline at the table and we'll come and wait on them. Isn't that something? Jesus is going to wait on us. It'll be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. I almost bought into it. I almost did. Early on, I was young and foolish. I too thought about a time of retirement. Even when I leave this chair, I'm not retiring. I will preach, I will pastor, I will evangelize, I will disciple until I take my last breath. Why? Because that's what God's called me to be and do. And by the way, that should be the norm. You need to be faithful. You need to be ready for the master to see you dressed serving. Receive your reward. Be alert. Be ready. Finally, be at rest. Be at rest. Be at peace. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be impatient. Don't be worried. You know, I've spent a lot of time the past couple of weeks in Daniel. Daniel's an Old Testament book that has a lot of eschatology in it and a lot of details about the end times, especially when you're speaking about Israel and um, the millennial kingdom, all of that. Uh, in fact, Daniel, by many scholars, is considered to be the Old Testament book of Revelation. See, Daniel was a teenager when he was taken from Israel and brought to Babylon after Babylon overran Judah. And uh, he made the most of it. Da Daniel actually became a statesman to several kings as well as a prophet of God. And Daniel died well into his 80s. But I was interested as I was reading how the book ends. Uh, he seems to be visited by two angels. And in chapter 12, at the end of the book, it says, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will be the outcome of all of this be? He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the wor words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. As for you, go your way till the end. You'll rest. And then at the end of the days, you'll rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Go away, Daniel, go away. Oh, can you imagine? Angels appearing to you and saying, go away. Close it up. No more answering questions. Seal it up. I think what the angels are telling Daniel is, you're not going to understand all the stuff until actually it happens at the time of the end. Some of this stuff will not be understood until the people during the end times understand it. They'll have the book of Revelation. They'll have Daniel. It's sealed. And this information will be made clear to those at the time of the end. But for you, Daniel, close the book. Stop asking questions. 
I think, that, I think that was very comforting to Daniel, and I believe it should be comforting to you as us, to you as well, that what God is calling us to do, as well as Daniel, is to trust him. Trust him for the details, even the ones, even the details we can't figure out. These future events are all under God's control and timing. And God is telling you and I, I want you to be at peace. I want you to rest in what I have told you, the outline I've given you, and leave the unknowns to me. That's a good word for us today. Every time I teach, and I'll be doing it next summer, every time I teach on my series, Things to Come, six sessions, and we'll go into much more detail than I've been able to go on, uh, I've been able to go into here on the Sunday messages. We'll go into the events, but again, it's, I tell people at the very beginning of the study, this is just an outline, okay? Don't be like one of those people who's so driven that they have to find out every nook and cranny of every prophecy and they end up muddying the waters. God has told us a general outline, and we need to leave the rest to mystery. So he says, go your way, Daniel, till the end. I've given you a lot of information. Rest. You don't, know, you don't have to know every detail of every event fully explained. You got the general outline. In the mid-1960s, in West Africa, a place called Guinea, a man by the name of Ahmad Siku Tori became president, actually was, was president for many years, actually was, came over here to the United States. I think he died in Cleveland, had cancer. But he led that country into Marxism and communism. And you know, one of the things about communism is that you cannot have free enterprise. They, they nationalize all the bu businesses. And uh, miraculously, though, in the capital city of Conakry, one business, one business was allowed to stay open during this time and be a free enterprise business. And it was a Christian bookstore run by an American missionary. And as the Russian presence became strong in that country, the, the missionary found, very interesting, that at this Christian bookstore, there was a thriving business on Russian Bibles. In fact, what he had to do was he had to actually put a, a kind of a curtain, a sheet, in the back where the Bibles were on a, uh, were on a bookshelf. He actually had to put a sheet there so that people looking in wouldn't see the Russian soldiers thumbing through the Bibles. But he eventually ran out of them. And so he ordered more, and he couldn't get Russian Bibles. Instead, he got Russian New Testaments with the Psalms at the end. You know that. You've seen those, right? They still sell them today. And one day, he said, a, a Russian a sailor came in, and he went to the back, and he took the New Testament, and he thumbed through it. He went to the end. He saw the Psalms. He put it back, and he started walking out. The missionary stopped him. He said, you don't want to buy the New Testament? And the sailor took it and opened it up to the back, and he showed him where the Psalms were. And the missionary finally realized that the, the reason the Russian soldiers were not buying these New Testament is because when they opened it up to the end, they didn't see the book of Revelation. And they didn't want to buy a Bible without the book of Revelation. And so what he did was when the, when the Russian soldiers would come in, he would take the New Testament and he would, 
flip back a couple of pages from the Psalms and he would show them the revelation is still there and, and, and their face would light up and they bought several and then the word got around and they started selling. And the missionary said, it was as if these soldiers were saying, we don't want a Bible where God doesn't win in the end. That interesting. Let me tell you something. It's not that just God wins in the end. His love wins in the end. As God calls people out constantly, chasing people, calling people, pursuing people, until he changes them, makes them into can-do people. The end of the story is that God's pursuing love wins in the end. He's coming back, folks. He's, he's coming back. Ready? Let's stand for closing prayer. I want to leave a moment for people, anybody that's in this room, that's listening online, anybody that has been prepared. And, and God has to prepare you. I can't do this. I can't do this. God has to do it. He's prepared you for this moment. You know it. It's like nobody else is in the room. God has opened you up. You know what you need to do. You need to pray a prayer like this and say to God, just respond to where God's prompted you to respond, to say, God, I believe it. I know I'm not born again. I'm not saved. I, I, I'm not ready. But I've heard the way today, and I, I want to believe. I want your death and resurrection to cover all of my sins, past, present, future sins. I want that to be my salvation and not my own righteousness, not my religion. And so I received that gift. I got open arms today, Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. I'm sorry for what I've done. I really am. I'm sorry for what I've done. Please, come into my heart. Make me into the kind of person you want me to be. Do whatever you want to do. I'm yours from now on. I'm yours. You're my Lord. I'm confessing you today. You're my Lord. I'll do whatever you want me to do from this moment on in my life. I don't know exactly what that means, but I am... I'm releasing my will to you and my life to you. Take it. Be my master. Be my Lord from this moment on. Anybody who prays that prayer, anybody, God will take you up on it. You will be filled with his Holy Spirit, and he will begin to change you from the inside out, and the Spirit will testify to the blood and tell you that you are born of God. Thank you, God, for your constant hounding after us. You're the hound of heaven. We don't seek you. You seek us out. Because you called us before the world was even made. You chose us. Bringing a people to yourself and making them into God's people. Thank you for your sovereign act of salvation. Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And God's people said,